Will you please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter 5. The guys have some Bibles if you need one as they make their way to the back, get their attention, and they'll get a Bible to you, 1 Peter chapter 5. Our church has been blessed with a wide mix of people, young and old, married and single, those who are settled into family life, those who are recently married, those with Christian upbringing, those with no religious training, and so on. As we celebrate Mother's Day, that diversity is evident as well. Young moms with young children, older moms with older children, older moms with young children, single moms, married moms, those from a Christian upbringing, and those with no biblical training as they were growing up. With all of these differences in the demographics of our moms, you all have at least one thing in common. When you became a mom, you entered uncharted territory. Now, since motherhood has been around from the beginning, how can any mom really be entering truly uncharted territory? Well, while it's true that for millennia, mothers have reared children, no one has reared your child. And your child is absolutely unique. Each child has her own natural bent and tendencies and gifts and shortcomings. They each have different intellectual and social and physical abilities that you begin discovering. And you began discovering even while they were in the womb or if you've adopted. And I'm delighted that we have a number of adoptive families in our church You began seeing those unique qualities as soon as you brought her home. Motherhood goes back to Eve, but no one yet has reared your child. No one has reared your child in your situation. One of the things that some of us have learned about our little precious little ones is their unique challenges. Even though we know each child is unique, you still had a model in your head about what normal was. Like many of you, Kim and I prepared thoroughly for the birth of our first child. Perhaps even more than most, because we were 32 by the time that Lainey was born 22 years ago. So we had lots of time to read and consult and talk with each other didn't take long to realize that for all our preparation, there are some things you're just not prepared for. I recall the first day we brought Lainey home from the hospital, those 22 years now. It was February and bitterly cold, so I warmed up the car in the parking lot for something like 45 minutes. (laughs) By the time she and Kim got in the car, it was a sauna. But you can't take any chances that your little one might catch something. When we got home, we marveled at God's gift of life as we held her and played with her and Kim fed her. Friends and family visited and we laughed and we wept for joy all that blessed day. At about 10 o'clock that evening, we were bushed, especially Kim. So we put our babe in her immaculately prepared room and crib. We said goodnight shut the door, headed to our room where we would rest our grateful heads and hearts until morning. Kim just collapsed in the bed because she was so exhausted. But I was not quite to our bedroom when I heard something. What is that? 
It sounds like a baby crying. It's probably our baby crying. And I go in and she's crying. And I pick her up and I hold her and I try to console her and she's still crying. My first instinct is to give her to Kim. But Kim is zonked, so I take her downstairs and I ask her what's the matter and she doesn't tell me. She just cries and cries and cries. So I'm in our living room doing the the baby dance. And I'm singing to her. And she cries louder. She cries louder when I do that. And I tried everything for hours to entertain her, to get her to stop crying. A few things worked, but only momentarily. And I'm thinking to myself, why did they not tell us about this? Or what did they tell us to do about this? Maybe I should call her pediatrician. At this point, it's 1 a.m. I didn't do that. Instead, it was just a matter of endurance until we both finally zoned out in the wee hours of the morning. Over the next few days and weeks, I discovered that this baby was what is called high maintenance. (laughs) High need, colicky, and various other terms to describe a fussy baby. We'd take her for rides in the car in the middle of the night. We put her in her car seat. We would place it on the kitchen counter with water running to distract her. We'd put the car seat on the clothes dryer and turn it on to give that vibration and perhaps she'll fall asleep. And for all of that trying and experimenting, we found that the baby always wanted one thing. Her mother. I recall getting a note of congratulations when I returned to work and it was from a guy I had never met. Because my employer had sent out one of those company-wide emails saying employee number 643 has a new arrival. This guy said he had two daughters that were five and three. And then he said this, quote, they won't notice you much at first as the dad. But after a few years, you'll be the center of their world. Well, I don't know about the center of their world, but I did become more important to them after they were each two or three. We had Annie almost three years after Lainey, and it was pretty much the same. High maintenance, high need, colicky, fussy for about two years. So we had a good four-year run in which for that entire time we had at least one baby who did not fall asleep when we wanted her to. It was exhausting for me, but especially so for Kim. I've told Kim many times since that how much I learned about the love of God by watching her love and care and compassion and sacrifice and tenderness for our girls. She was criticized by some, some even in church. This was before we started our church. Criticized because she was babying them. Go figure, they're babies. She was babying them, but she knew what our girls needed and she did our best to provide it. Now, some of you have good babies, which I'm told means they sleep through the night. And my wife and I hate you all. (laughs) But others of you can relate to what I'm talking about. And the truth is, many of you have much larger challenges than sleep patterns. I think of the several little ones in our church who've had physical ailments from early on. Some hospitalized with major surgery, others undergoing test after test after test, still not finding out what's wrong. 
eating disorders, various forms and degrees of autism, and on it goes. I've seen all those situations and many more, but one thing I've observed as constant among the mothers of our church, no matter your situation, you moms love your children with your very life. You care for and nurture them and work with them. And you may want to pull your hair out, and sometimes literally so. You feel a deep, deep sense of empathy with the struggles of your little one. And there's a very good reason that you do that. Because it's a gift from God through you to them that you're like that. Genesis chapter 1 tells us God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, to be made in the image of God means that we reflect God's character back to him. We reflect that character as male and female. Certain characteristics of God will be more vividly displayed in women than in men, and vice versa. And women tend to display God's tenderness and compassion more clearly than men. We see this aspect of God's character given in Scripture, the prophet Isaiah. This is what the Lord says, as a mother comforts her child, so will I comfort you. The Bible tells us of Jesus when he walked the earth 2,000 years ago, lamenting the fact that his own people, the Jewish people, and their sacred city, Jerusalem, would not receive him. And he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Now, God-given maternal instinct is a blessing then to your children. You see, the more intense your feelings, the more real your joy. But hear this. It also means the more deep your pain. And there can be pain in motherhood. Certainly physically, as seen in the process of giving birth. And then emotionally, as sometimes all you've done and all you've sacrificed is not reciprocated. So I want to talk to our ladies about the challenge of your very real emotional investment in those you love. I want to do it for the sake of those who are feeling pain now, but also for the sake of those who are in the process of raising your children. We don't know how this process is going to turn out. And so we need to prepare for what can happen. The Bible says in Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, you have heard me explain, if you've taken our How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible class, that the book of Proverbs gets its name because it's a collection of just that, Proverbs. And Proverbs are, by their very nature, general truths. They are not laws. They are not intended to be legal guarantees. So it is still possible that you can raise a child in the right way, and they still go the wrong way. That's not a violation of what the scriptures teach. Generally, it is true when a child is trained up the right way, they go that way. But it's not a legal guarantee. So I want to address our ladies, but also all of us today, on the truth that love shown to fallen people is risky. And it can involve difficulty and pain, whether with our children or our spouses or our friends or whomever. So let's pray and ask God to help us then. 
Father, we thank you again for another Lord's Day, for gathering us. Lord, we are in your presence. We're here to praise you, but we're here to learn of you as well. So, Lord, teach us from your word. Help us to make application of your word to the relationships to which you have called us. Yes, mothers to children, but fathers to children, fathers and mothers, husbands and wives to each other, church members to one another. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So what should we do with the burdens that always accompany a genuine display of love? Well, we should do with those burdens what we should do with all our cares. And that's why I've asked you to turn to 1 Peter 5. Famously in verse 7, it says, cast all your anxiety on him. Now, that Greek verb, you know your New Testament was written in Greek, translated into English for us. The Greek verb that's translated cast means to throw upon. And it's written in a tense that indicates a decisive act on our part. And the words all our anxiety include all the difficulty a believer who wants to live a godly life in a fallen world will face. One commentator says this, we are to commit our whole cause to him. If we suffer heavy trials... If we lose our friends, health, or property, if we have arduous and responsible duties to perform, if we feel that we have no strength and are in danger of being crushed by what is laid upon us, we may go and cast all upon the Lord. That is, we may look to him for grace and strength and feel assured that he will enable us to sustain all that is laid upon us. Another says, throw your cares, which are so cutting and distracting, which wound your souls and pierce your hearts. Throw those upon the wise and gracious providence of God. Trust in him with a firm, composed mind, for he cares for you. Now, this advice to cast all your care, all your anxiety on the Lord is important for all of us, not just women and mothers. We all have much that can be reason for anxiety. The best of Christians are prone to labor under the burden of anxious and excessive care. And the list of things that can be a source of anxiety is truly endless. There are personal cares, family cares, cares for the present, cares for the future, cares for ourselves, for others, for God's church. But as it involves others, this is what I want us to see today. And I have this in the outline that's on the back of your program. If you don't haven't turned to that as yet, I encourage you to do so. First of all, the greater the love the deeper the hurt. The greater the love, the deeper the hurt. Now, I'm speaking here of the emotional aspect of love. That is, the deeper the emotion, the deeper the emotional commitment, then the greater the potential hurt if things do not go as they should. And we see this in an episode in the life of the Lord Jesus. Many of you know that the shortest verse in the Bible is John 11:35, just two words, Jesus wept. But what was the occasion of the Lord himself weeping? Well, it was the news of the death of his good friend Lazarus. And the Bible says this, Jesus wept. And those with him said, see how he loved him. See how Jesus loved him. The intensity and emotion Jesus had for his friend. And that was evidenced by his weeping over his loss. Now, we have taught for many years, rightly, that love is not first an emotion. 
Our culture teaches that it's not only first, but completely emotion. And so we believe falsely that we can fall in and out of love. But when I teach that love is not to be equated with emotion, I try to use my words carefully. Love is not primarily or first an emotion. Love is doing that which is in the best interest of another. But the Bible teaches that you can make the right choices, even sacrificial choices, and still not have love. Did you know that? The love chapter in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 13 says this. If I give all I possess to the poor and I surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. Notice, giving all, sacrificing yourself is still not necessarily love and I gain nothing. Clearly then, love is not only doing the right thing, even if it's primarily doing the right thing. Affection should follow. John Piper gives this illustration where he says, picture me bringing a dozen roses home to my wife on our wedding anniversary. I hold them out to her at the door. She smiles and says, oh, Johnny, they're beautiful. Why did you? And he says, suppose I lift my hand in a self-effacing gesture and I say, it's my duty. <laughs> Love is more than just doing your duty. The physical pain of childbirth foreshadows the emotional pain a mother will experience through the lives of her children. The process of carrying and giving birth to a child creates what should be an unbreakable bond between mother and child. The very beginning of the Bible, the third chapter of the Bible, after the first couple has, has sinned and plunged, plunged humanity into fallenness, God pronounces the consequences for that. And as he turns to the woman, he says in chapter 3 and verse 16, now in pain you will give birth to your children. And this involves the entirety of pregnancy and delivery, the gestation period, the sickness, the kicking, primarily the delivery. But then there's also the bonding that happens. And having gone through that pain, there's a rightful expectation of gratitude that should be returned by the child. And often it is given and it's lived out. But sometimes it's not. And as a result, there's severe pain. Or perhaps it's not something your child has done or failed to do in reciprocating this love to you, but perhaps something done to your child and you feel for him or her and for yourself. But because you love so deeply, there's going to be then this intensity of pain. When the angels announced the birth of the Lord Jesus to his mother, Mary, they predicted this. A sword will pierce your soul. Mary, who bore this child in her body, she gave birth to this child. And we know that she would later see him brutalized and murdered. And it was as if a sword was going through her very heart. Her maternal instincts are to protect and nourish and tenderly care for the needs of her child. And these are natural instincts, God-given affections that reflect the character of God. And they are good and they should be encouraged and not suppressed. So as an aside on that issue of suppressing the maternal instinct to reach out to your child and care for your child. It's one reason, I say this as an aside, but it's one reason that we've not been high on child rearing methods that call on moms to hold down their motherly instincts when her child cries for her. Now I know that there are all sorts of opinions about early childhood care and development 
And you mothers have heard all the advice in the world and everyone is an expert. But each set of parents has to decide on what method they're going to use. But I do want to say this. Contrary to what some advocates claim, it is not at all clear that denying or suppressing the maternal instinct is, in their words, God's way. Now, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, then this is just another Sunday morning at CBC. (laughs) Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about with regard to that, then don't worry about it. If you do and you have questions about why I say that, then let me know. But for now, suffice it to say that God made women and mothers with particular strengths, which generally we men do not have in the same measure. The nurturing and caring and compassionate instinct is therefore good and it should be encouraged. But it also means that ladies are more vulnerable to a greater sense of hurt and betrayal. My girls and my wife have an empathy that allows them to feel the pain, physically feel the pain of other people. I've seen it in them. I saw that in the life of my own mother who was hurt deeply through much of her life. She loved and she gave and she gave. And very often that was not reciprocated. And as a mother, she cried and she cried time and time again. I tried to console her, but we men can't understand the depth of feeling that a mother has. And as a result of this, some then kind of throw in the towel and they give up on love to avoid the hurt. It's too painful, so why risk it? And sometimes this pain is, to some extent, self-inflicted. If that's the case, if it's because of things we have done or failed to do, then we, as sinners before our gracious God, must take it to Him in confidence that in Christ He forgives, rather than the alternative of harboring it to our own and others' detriment. If you've seen things in which you failed your children by not supplying what they needed or by not being there for them, then it's in the past and it can be placed in the past But we must confess these self-inflicted wounds to God and to those offended. But often the wounds are other inflicted. People we've loved, people we've sacrificed for, who don't return it. One way to help you deal with this is to implement what you've heard me talk about a number of times over the years. What I call our circle of concern and our circle of responsibility. All of us have these two circles. We have a wider circle of concern, lots of things that we're concerned about, that come to our mind, that we would like to change if it was within our power. But then a subset of those concerns, a smaller circle within that circle is our circle of responsibility. And you must in your mind make the distinction between the two. We are not responsible for all that we are concerned about. And we're concerned at the highest level about what happens with our children. But we have responsibility only so far. Ultimately, it's God's responsibility as to how it turns out. And so as you look back, if there are things for you to make right, make them right with God. Make them right with those people. And then you leave them in the past. You cast your care upon the Lord. The greater the love, the deeper the hurt. I say in your outline. The greater the goal, the deeper the disappointment. We have these children, these God-given gifts, and we see all the possibilities. 
And we share these with our spouse if we're married. We share them with our children and we try to move them in a good and godly direction. But the greater the goal, the greater the disappointment if it does not happen as we dreamed. And so some give up on the goals, just like others, as I said a bit ago, give up on love. But the answer is not to give up on the goals. The answer is to do this. Hold your dreams for your children with a loose grip. One family counselor prays before God with his palms up and his hands open. And he's saying, in effect, when he makes requests of God on behalf of his family, these things I'm requesting are not idols that I'm grabbing onto and they must happen. No, they are yours for you to use as you see fit, Lord. Some compensate. Many parents are right now in a phase of compensation for some disappointment. It's not turned out how you dreamed it would. Some difficulty, perhaps no fault of your own or their own, has disappointed your and their expectations. So I'm disappointed for them and for myself, and so I compensate by buying, by indulging, by excusing. Because things have not gone as I think they ought. My mom, who's with the Lord now, but I saw her do compensation. With all the hurt, she would grab onto any ray of hope she could to find in the lives of her children. And she would try to make excuses for what had happened because it hurt so deeply to see it as it really was. She would look to me a lot of times to sort of make up for that. Oh my, <laughs> looking to me. And she would tell people, she loved to tell people, my son's a minister. I can't tell you how many times she would say that to people I've never met. Kenny, come on over here. My son's a minister. I would say, hey. I could preach you a sermon. Here's another thing to bear in mind with regard to this issue of disappointments. And the greater goals and how deep the disappointments can be. And that is something else that I've told you over the years. And that is expectations minus reality equals trouble. There are expectations and then there's the reality of life. And almost always there's a gap. Things that we've done or what others have done that keep us from achieving what we expected. There's always a gap between what we thought was going to happen and reality. And the answer is not to give up on goals, but to have a God-centered perspective and hold on loosely to those expectations. The greater the love, the deeper the hurt. The greater the goal, the deeper the disappointment, I say in your outline. The greater the regret, the deeper the damage. Now, when I say greater here, I'm saying the nature of the regret may be something significant. It may be something large. Maybe your regret is I wasn't there for my kids. I pursued my own interests. It may be great in terms of something large, significant, something that had great impact. But it may also be great in that you wish you had done it differently. It may not be huge, but if you had it to do over, you would do it differently. But it's become now great... In that, though it's relatively small, over a long period it's festered within you and it does damage. 
And damage to whom? Well, it does damage to others because it debilitates you as you mull over and over. It does damage to yourself. The Bible teaches if we do not deal with our issues, our issues will deal with us. It can develop what the Bible calls a root of bitterness. It can even cause physical problems. David had an issue, self-inflicted. He sinned, King David. And he refused to deal with it. He tried to cover it up. He sinned further by that cover-up. He was finally confronted by a prophet and shown his sin. And as a result, he was pierced to the heart. He was convicted. But he gives his testimony in Psalm number 32 about the effects that it was having on him when he refused to deal with it. The Bible says, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. So ladies, as we deal with our regret, whether small over a long period of time or large things that we've done wrong, we need to confess that. And many of us need to confess unbelief, unbelief in two particular ways. Unbelief, first of all, in failing to believe that God will forgive. Do you hear that? You see, it's a matter of unbelief if you don't believe God has and will forgive. And so you don't go to the Lord over and over asking forgiveness for the same thing. Did you know that? If you believe he forgives, then you ask him to forgive and he promises to do that, right? And if I continue now to let that debilitate me, and if I continue to go and ask forgiveness, then it's the confession of unbelief that, in fact, God will and has forgiven. And secondly, we should confess unbelief in God's goodness. Because a good God can repair what we have broken and what others have broken. We must trust in the goodness and wisdom of God when it's out of our realm of responsibility and it's now in the realm of our concern. Ultimately, we can turn our concerns over to God. So if you've seen things in which you've failed your children by not supplying what they needed or by not being there for them, it's in the past and it can be placed in the past, but we must confess our sin of unbelief. Give the hurt and disappointment and regret to Jesus. But how? How do we how do we do that? Well, we do that with regard to this great love that mothers have for their children. Remember, first Peter five, seven. Cast all your anxiety on him. Now, notice the last phrase, because he cares for you. So how do I now believing come to him, throw it all on him, give it to him? And I say in your outline a few things. Giving it all to Jesus means remembering a few things. Jesus loves infinitely more than we do. As you think about, ladies, the pain that you have felt or are feeling, that's because you've been designed this way by God. But then think about how the love of God is infinitely greater than any love we fallen humans can have for anyone. If you can feel that intensity of love for someone then certainly God feels it infinitely greater. His love is infinitely greater than what we have. He loves that child. He loves that wayward, struggling child. 
As you give to Jesus, you are professing your belief that the one who came to earth and gave his life on the cross has demonstrated a depth of love to whom I can entrust the lives of my loved ones. And hear this. If it doesn't happen in his gracious hand, there is nothing you or any being in the universe could do to make it happen. You entrust it to him. The Bible tells us about this surpassing love of God. Ephesians chapter 3, how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. So give it to Jesus who loves them more than you. Second, remember that Jesus empathizes completely with us. Remember that famous passage in Hebrews 4, we do not have a priest, a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are and yet was without sin. We have these disappointments because we had these great goals that have not been realized. But isn't it the case that our great high priest knows what it means to have people not go the way that he designed? (laughs) He had that happen in his own earthly life. And so he can sympathize. The word that's translated sympathize means that you can feel it because, you, uh, because you've been there. He's been there. He empathizes, not just sympathizes. And it's similar to, I'm told by those who tune pianos, that if you have two pianos in the same room and you hit a key on one, it vibrates that same key on on another because they have this sympathetic resonance with one another. Jesus feels it. He knows it. And bear this in mind as your expectations have been disappointed for your children. Bear this in mind that Jesus has met the highest expectations. Maybe your child has not turned out as you thought, but Jesus has met the highest expectations. What they need most is not some goal of your creation. What they need most is to be accepted by a holy God in the person of Jesus. And he has met the highest expectations. And third, remember this. Jesus redeems our regrets. All that I talked about earlier that you have done or others have done to you or your children and that you regret, it may be weighing on you. But for God's children, Jesus redeems all of that. How do I know he redeems all of that? How do I know he makes all of that right? Well, I know it from a number of passages in the Bible, but famously in Romans chapter 8, we know that in a couple things, God works for the good of those who love him. It doesn't say that, does it? It doesn't say in a few things. It doesn't say in the easy things. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And when you read further in that chapter of Romans chapter 8, as we do not often do, we stop at that famous verse. But it gives a list of the kinds of things that God works for good. And they're all dire. They're all difficult things that this good and sovereign God works for good. So give to Jesus, believing that he can and does redeem our regret Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Your worry, your anxiety, your regret, throw it to him. Now, I know that some of you are thinking, 
I've been carrying this around and I can't tell you how many times I've thrown it at him. So why isn't it working? Why is it not working for some of you? Well, when you think you're casting all on Jesus, for some of you, you still got it. And if you still got it, it means you haven't given it to him. Now, how is it that we can go about thinking we've given it, but we're still actually holding on to it? Well, first, I would recommend to you that you take those burdens to the Lord, whatever they are, whoever we are, mothers, women, men, and you be very specific about what they are. And you be very specific about, Lord, I am giving this to you. This is outside of my area of ability and responsibility. It's in my area of concern, and I'm giving it to you. And hear this. You're not giving permission for God to work it out as you originally envisioned. You're not saying, I can't get it there, so I'm giving it to you to get it where I want. You're not saying, I messed it up, so fix it as I want. Casting it all on Him requires that you relinquish control of the issue. You're saying, I trust you and I give this fully to you to work out in your goodness and grace as you see fit. You're saying, I trust you fully with this. It has not gone as I planned or expected or wanted, but I give you, God, control. And failure to do that is why it's not, quote, working for some of you. Because you haven't given it to God, you're still holding on to it and saying it's got to come out a particular way. James, in James chapter 4, says there are times when we ask but do not receive... Because we tell God how it should turn out. James says, when you ask, you do not receive. Because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you want, what you get on your pleasures. You've given the issue to him, but not control of the issue and the outcome. Instead of handing it over to him, casting it on him, we still want a measure of holding on and control. So ladies, men, boys, girls, teenagers, everybody, you cast your anxiety on him because he can be trusted with it because he cares for you. Your take-home truth then is this. Mothers suffer because they care. And Jesus heals because he cares. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you again for granting us the privilege of being here in your presence with your people, with your word. We thank you for every Lord's Day. We thank you for this day and the focus upon motherhood. We ask you, Lord, to heal the hurts of our ladies. We ask you, Lord, to ease and take the burdens that our ladies are willing to wisely cast upon you to put upon your shoulders and to no longer hold on to. Lord, for each of us, whether mothers or ladies, every one of us needs to be willing to do that, to see the difference between what you've assigned to us to do and what is outside of our control. 
And Lord, there is so very much that's outside our control. It's in our circle of concern, not our circle of responsibility. So help us, Lord, to see the difference and to gladly and, and with belief, with faith, give it to you. And may your work, your will, and your glory in and through our circumstances and in our lives, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.